Welcome back, Radio Entrepreneurs, listeners, and fans. I'm producer Nathan Gobes. Excited to be back with you again and back with Tom McNulty of Lando and Anastasi, one of our regular reporters, here to talk, about, talk to us about a new subject related to intellectual property. <coughs> Welcome, Tom. Hi, it's always, a, always good to be here. Thanks. Why don't you uh, dive right into our topic? Most of our listeners should be uh, knowledgeable of who you are, and uh, we're excited to hear what you have to say today. Okay, so today I thought I'd talk about um, the concept of willful infringement of the of the various types of intellectual property. Um, you know, the, the sort of three main pillars of, of IP are patent, trademark, and copyright. And for the first two of those, patents and trademarks, you can infringe without having any knowledge of the patent, without having any knowledge of the trademark, and certainly without having any intent. Um, copyright infringement, you have to you have to have had access to the material that was copied. So there sort of is some knowledge and intent kind of baked in. Uh, but in all of these, uh, in all of these forms of protection, if a court finds that your infringement was willful, you know, you, you deliberately took action, uh, knowing that there was a likelihood of infringement, they can uh, do some things like enhancing damages, award attorneys fees, things like that, that I thought, uh, you know, might be good to have kind of a general discussion on those lines. Okay, sure. That, uh, that makes sense to me. I'm, I'm interested to hear more. Okay, so I guess the first I would want to tackle is uh, in patent law, um, patents, uh, the patent statutes have a section that deals with exceptional cases. Uh, they don't specifically reference willful infringement in the statute, just they allow a court to uh, increase damages by up to a factor of three for exceptional cases. Um, and there are some other things that can come into play in whether a case is exceptional, litigation misconduct being probably the, the main one other than willfulness. But by and large, courts have treated this as a requirement, um, have treated the statute as though a finding of willful infringement is required. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and uh, under the patent statute, patent fees, uh, pa excuse me, attorney's fees are not typically awarded. But if, if, if it falls within this exceptional case category, um, the courts can also, in lieu of or in addition to trebling damages, can award attorney's fees. Uh, on the trademark side of things, um, the typical measures of damages in trademark law, uh, it can be your actual damages as the trademark holder. It can be a disgorgement of the infringer's profits, and it can sometimes include awards of attorney's fees. Uh, up until 2020, courts treated the disgorgement of the infringer's profits as something that could only occur if they found willful infringement. Um, a Supreme Court decision removed the willful finding as a as sort of an absolute requirement, uh, but they strongly suggested that in most cases, that's what you're going to need. So effectively for, for a disgorgement of the infringer's profits, which you know is often the, the uh, highest measure of damages, Right. Um, you, you'll really need to, uh, to, to uh, prove willfulness. And the same thing on the attorney's fees side, in that case, the trademark statutes provide that attorney's fees can be awarded uh, to the prevailing party only in exceptional cases. And, and historically, other than litigation misconduct, again, um, infringements that are willful, that are deliberate, um, are, are somewhat of a prerequisite for that. Um, and then I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the concept of trademark dilution. Not maybe not. Go. Cool. Yeah, I mean pause? the real quick basics of that because I'm I'm not really looking to do a treatise on that today. Uh, if you have a famous mark, usually trademarks are protected within the field of goods and services that you offer. Um, so somebody can use Apple, for example. 
you know, it was the Beatles record label and Apple computers started. And at the time, anyways, those were separate and distinct enough that they were allowed to coexist. I don't think that would probably be the case these days. Um, But uh, if a mark has become famous, um, you can prevent people from using that mark, even if the goods and services are wildly different. And you can collect damages if they do so. Um, and, and in terms of dilution, it's actually a statutory requirement that willfulness be found. So there it's an absolute bar on, on uh, award of profits. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. I can't use the, uh, the Nike logo on, I don't know, my, my new widget. <laughs> exactly. You can't sell Coca-Cola uh, running shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure they do, though. <laughs> um, um, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and actually, one of the other kind of weird quirks of trademark law is it exists at the federal level, but it also exists at the state level. You can have a state registration. And under Massachusetts law, if you have a state registration, um, if there's a willfulness finding under, under the state law, the court can enhance the damages by a factor of up to three and award attorney's fees. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so there's sort of uh, trademark law has many different sort of layers and levels. Um, would it make sense for uh, a business owner to pursue uh, federal versus state one over the other, or would you pursue potentially pursue both if your trademark was infringed? Um, well, to, to pursue both, well, to pursue it at the state level, you have to have registered within the state. Okay. Uh, it, it's inexpensive. It involves usually nothing more than a single filing. So it's never a bad idea to do so. Do both, uh, the state, right. the state, you know, a state registration protects you, you know, within the state of Massachusetts. If you're registered in Massachusetts, you wouldn't be able to use it outside of the state, whereas federal gives you nationwide coverage. So obviously there's advantages to federal, right. um, but the federal process of getting a trademark registered is, is a bit more uh, complex and time consuming. And, gotcha. <laughs> and both, uh, both would cover out for any, um, perpetrators based outside of the area that you're registering in, of course, right? So if they're, you know, you register in Massachusetts and somebody in California, uh, you know, does something, then you, you're still can utilize that trade, uh, that state, right? Is that correct? Um, there, it sort of depends. If somebody from California is selling into Massachusetts, you could go after them for selling into Massachusetts. But if they're existing and doing their business solely in California, you would effectively not have any rights against them and, and you'd sort of have to coexist. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you just had the state registration. Yeah, if you just had state, right. Yeah. Okay. No, it's good um, So then there's the copyright side of things. And like I say, to infringe a copyright, it's not enough that you just sort of stumbled across the same thing that somebody else had previously done. You have to have had access and there has to have been some actual copying. So there sort of is an inherent, I don't want to say willfulness to it, but it slides a lot closer to willfulness when you simply have uh, copyright infringement. Um if willful infringement in copyright context is found, um, it really applies primarily to statutory damages. Um, so under copyright law, you can collect your actual damages or in the alternative, you can collect statutory damages, which would be a statutorily set amount um, per infringement. Um, in, uh, in federal court, um, it, you know, in, in sort of run-of-the-mill infringement, the amount can be anywhere from 750 to $30,000 per infringing act. Uh, with a finding of willfulness, uh, that amount goes up to as high as $150,000 per infringement. Um, and, and also attorney's fees can be awarded and, and statutory, I'm sorry, and willfulness can be kind of a factor in that as well. Um, it's not a prerequisite to attorney's fees, but, um, but it's one of the factors that would be considered. Um, so that's kind of why willfulness is important. Um, 
but I guess one of the things I, I sort of really wanted to highlight, there's sort of willfulness in the sense of I went out and I deliberately wrote, you know, I deliberately copied this. I deliberately did something right. that infringed a patent that I knew about. By God, I knew it infringed and I did it anyways. It's kind <laughs> of your, your clear cut, you know, smack yourself in the head kind of cases of obviousness. And, you know, if you've got an email and discovery from the opposing side that says, damn it, I don't care, copy it, do it. <laughs> uh, that's pretty unusual. Um, so usually yeah. it's, uh, it, it involves some sort of inferences based on the evidence of record. Uh, and one of the concepts I wanted to touch on is in, in all three of these categories, there's a concept of willful blindness hmm. that can rise to the level of willful infringement. Um, and this is something I think, you know, companies sort of need to be aware about. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, in the patent world, for example, um, a, a, 20, a t- <laughs> 2020 decision um, made uh, an award of enhanced damages kind of easier to get and more likely by removing patent in patent law. It used to be that if you came up with an objectively reasonable defense to infringement, whether it be non-infringement or you think the patent's invalid or something, it didn't matter when you came up with it. So if you started infringing, you knew about the opposing patent and you did it for five or six years and then got sued and in litigation, um, your your counsel dug up a prior art reference that looked like maybe it would bring into question the validity of the patent. That would be enough to absolve you on the willful side of things for the past six years of activity when you had no knowledge of that reference. Um, and the Supreme Court did away with that. So now it's it's your subjective belief at the time you commit the infringing acts. So a lot of companies' response to that was to institute policies that prohibited employees from reviewing patents. Um, Interesting you know, sort sort of, you know, if, if, if we don't know, because part of, part of an, a willful infringement finding in patent laws, you have to know about the opposing patent. You have to know that your, your product or service is likely to infringe. Um, so this was sort of a way to make sure you didn't know. Ah. And that has been treated uh, in at least some cases um, as sufficient to rise to reckless disregard uh, of whether you're infringing, um, that's, that's sufficient to have a finding of willfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, so the concept of willful blindness is the defendant must subjectively believe there's a high probability that a fact exists, that there's a patent out there covering this, that, you know, my, my actions may or may not infringe that. And then the defendant must take a deliberate action to avoid learning about that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the classic patent case in, in that area, it was a, a company that was knocking off, I want to say it was a deep fryer, deep fryer machine. So mm-hmm. they bought, they bought a competitive product, um, took it apart, figured out how to, how to copy it, you know, how to make it and made copies of it. Um, while they were in the process of doing this, the product itself was marked with a patent number. It had, you know, this is covered by us patent number, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, they deliberately withheld that information from their attorneys when their attorneys were conducting a search, patent search, to see if this was something that they could do. Um, and that's one of the ways to defeat infringement is you get you know, a, a competent uh, opinion of counsel that you're free to operate in the area. Uh, so in this case, they did get a freedom to operate opinion, but they deliberately withheld from the guys doing the opinion what was going to clearly be the most relevant patent. Um, so in that case, you know, they knew the existence of the patent. They didn't necessarily know that they infringed because they never read it. Um, but they were found to uh, be a willful infringer by deliberately going out of their way to avoid finding that out. Mm. Sounds like one of the best takeaways here is for, uh, business owners that are creating, uh, their own, 
you know, to, to make sure they get those those trademarks filed and placed on on their products for, you know, the fact that they had it on there uh, really means that it, it couldn't be hidden. You know, they couldn't yeah. avoid it. They could they could try. They could pretend. But in the end, it's going to show that, you know, they were willfully, uh, you know, being ignorant to it. Yeah, exactly. And I think in, at least in the terms of willful infringement, I think one of the biggest takeaways is if something happens where you're a little bit suspicious, you're getting too good of a deal, something's a little bit too easy, um, you know, don't deliberately, you know, hide your eyes and, and not right. know. Um, so this this will happen a lot in the context, for example, software. If, if if somebody says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a software salesman and I can get you copies of, you know, Microsoft Office Suite for, you know, 10 bucks a pop. That's su- suspiciously low enough that you may end up being kind of deemed willfully blind if you don't try to figure out, Jesus, this is a legitimate copy. Um, you know, that's that's one of the contexts you see it arise in a lot is, is software. Right. Um, Makes sense. Much easier to, you know, it's it, when when you've got like a, a deep fryer, for example, there's there's like you said, there's probably a plate on there that says cover by patent, whatever, whatever. But it's not always quite the same with uh, software. So that makes sense. Yeah. That often is an issue. Yeah. And on the patent side of things, I think one other thing it's important to note, um, putting the, the patent number on the product is called patent marking. And it's a requirement in, in collecting damages um, to provide notice of the patent. And that's one of the ways that it's done. Um, within the last, I don't know, six years or so, the courts and the, and the patent laws allow for you to do virtual patent marking. So you can, instead of having the patent number on the product, you can have a website um, you know, web page listed for for patent information. See www whatever. Um, and and if, you know, again, if you see something like that, and then you don't go to the site and look at the patents, you're again potentially you know sticking your neck out uh, for for a willfulness finding and an enhanced damages award. Sticking your neck out, but but your head in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is all really interesting and uh, definitely something that business owners need to be aware of, uh, regardless of which side uh, they find themselves on, whether they're the uh, original creator, there's takeaways here of what they should be considering. uh, And then also, you know, if there's somebody, like you said, if they're getting too good of a deal uh, or if they're trying to, you know, take advantage of another uh, competitor's, you know, product that they, you know, have serious issues that, that could arise from doing so. So it's all it's all very interesting, and and we really appreciate you joining us here, Tom. Uh, if people want to find out more, reach out to you and and get some advice at Lando and Anastasi. What's the best way to do so? Uh, they can always reach me at my email address. It's t mcnulty m c n u l t y at l a law dot com, uh, or they can get me by phone six one seven three nine five seven zero four zero. Great. Tom joins us monthly here at Radio Entrepreneurs, and we're looking forward to having you back. We'll be back with more Radio Entrepreneurs after this break.